Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Not just any episode, though. This is a special edition. I'll hand it over to Claire, who, who's going to explain. Well, it's Christmas time. Chris, Yes, I'm sure you know that better than anybody else. Yes, true, I do. <laughs> so, Chris, for many people, um, Christmas means celebrating the birth of Jesus. But there are a lot of us out there, a growing proportion maybe, who aren't religious or maybe are a different religion. And the idea of a huge holiday to celebrate the birth of someone of little to no importance to them is not very desirable. Mm-hmm. But never fear, Lost in Science is here. If you don't want to celebrate Jesus' birthday this December, that doesn't mean you shouldn't celebrate at all. So we are going to look at the notable, the famous, the infamous the amazing scientists and mathematicians who left their mark on our world, who were all born in and around December 25th. That's correct. Some notable people won't get a mention, I suppose, like <clears throat> yours truly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Your birthday is on Christmas Day. No, Christmas Eve, 24th. Christmas Eve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, but well, we we just were, mentioned you. Were you, you, just born, were you born in a manger, though? I mean, this is the big question. It was pretty mangy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yes, that was what we'll do. We will explore some some famous scientists and related things and people born in the month of December. Just important, different people who were born at yeah. this time. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. reasons to celebrate these people. Exactly. Yeah, stay tuned, or you'll be sorry. <laughs> 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 Look, but first, before we get started, I just want to give uh, a little couple of mentions to some topical news that's been in the in the news lately. We had the Australian government release their innovation agenda with their research funding and science and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, time will tell, I guess, what this actually means. It's kind of a after years of cutting back science, I think it's good to see a bit of commitment from the government on that. Do you think it's like an early Christmas present for? Science. Um, look, so, well, as we've established, scientists don't care about Christmas. So <laughs> and it's, it's very unlikely anyone guessed. will see any money before Christmas. So I wouldn't say it was early either. This is either. true. This is true. <laughs> look, there's been a bit of criticism. I mean, it is focusing very much on connections like between research and industry and commercialising research, which people have criticised saying pure research is very important, which of course it is. We are all over pure research here at Lost in Science. Um, I think the thing that shouldn't be forgotten is that Australia apparently is like the worst industrialised country in terms of commercialising research, in terms of connecting research and business. Um, and a lot of money has been um, funnelling through into the CSIRO to commercialise some of the inventions and the innovations that they come up yeah. with. Yeah. It just mm. um, private industry in Australia is not very good at putting the money up and a lot of these things get sold overseas. So here's hoping some of that will, will turn around, I guess. Uh, we've also had, of course, the Paris talks on climate change with a kind of a token thing of saying they're going to go to aim for about one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. I think we're already at something like 0.85 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So, yeah, look, good luck to them to doing that, I guess. Well, yeah, some people have already said that it's it's – virtually impossible for us to keep it under 1.5 without sucking carbon out of the air that's already up there. So yeah. that's going to be a big issue is like, even if we can, you know, cut back on emissions now, there's still so much 
CO2 up there already that it's gonna it's still heating up. There's a lag effect involved, so yeah. we're gonna it'll be interesting times ahead. Still, at least the words are in the right place. Well, yeah. On to the science, shall we? Absolutely. Um, On to the science mess. Science. Okay, so first birthday we've got coming up. Let's have a look at the list. Oh, it's not even a person. <laughs> it's, it's, I am going to chuck in one here. This is um, in honour of, look, we've been celebrating general relativity this year as a big 100th anniversary. We shouldn't forget the other big theory with its celebration this year, which is 150 years since James Clark Maxwell developed his Maxwell's equations. Um, now, they were actually published in 1865, but he gave them in a speech to the Royal Society in 1864, but the 8th of December. So I reckon it fits into our December kind of theme. It definitely does. Yeah. definitely does. Everybody would have been starting their Christmas shopping at that time. So yes. I think we can celebrate it in this episode. Now, Maxwell's equations, they are, well, you probably don't know too much about them. All I'll just say is that they are the test of a true physicist. If you're a real <laughs> physicist, you revere <laughs> Maxwell's equations. This is true. All physicists revere <laughs> Maxwell's equations. People who aren't physicists generally have no idea what they are. Oh, look, I've even heard it said that they're the grooviest equations. <laughs> you may have heard that slightly before. I, I, I have heard on the that somewhere, yeah. yeah. Look, basically what they are, they are four equations. Uh, I won't read them out because they're pretty hard to read out involving calculus. Um, they basically unify electricity and magnetism. They are responsible for the technology that we enjoy today. They um, predicted the existence of electromagnetic magnetic waves, uh, which before that people didn't realise, because essentially what they say is that an electric field can cause a magnetic field and a magnetic field can cause an electric field. So that's how you get an electromagnetic wave and that kind of, you know, building on each other kind of effect. And when Maxwell, you know, predicted those, he realised that they travelled at the speed of light, so he deduced that light was an electromagnetic wave and, ta-da, we had most of the 20th century of physics. For this reason, he was Einstein's favourite physicist. <laughs> And pretty much... Because who, was, who was Maxwell's favourite physicist? I don't know. Maxwell was a bit of an outsider, mm. it seems. He was, probably, he was a Scottish some, guy. Some alchemist. Somewhere. Probably some alchemist. <laughs> no one's ever heard oh, of. We'll probably think of an alchemist later who it might be. Mm. Um, but yeah, he was, it was a big deal. Um, in, but essentially, it's his, his theories was one of the reasons why Einstein came up with his special theory of relativity, because Maxwell's equations don't make sense if you could travel at the speed of light alongside these electromagnetic waves. So he had to change all of space and time so that Maxwell's equations would still work. That's how important they were. So, yeah, 150 years of Maxwell's equations. Some people think they're the most beautiful, kind of perfect theory of fields and forces. Uh, yeah, physicists love them. And if you want to celebrate Maxwell, <laughs> you could, like, get a tiny little Maxwell silver hammer and put it on your Christmas tree. <laughs> Just you like could, the Beatles song. Well, Maxwell also, the actual James Clark Maxwell came up with the notion of Maxwell's demon, which is used in um, thermodynamics. So oh. maybe you have a little demon dancing on your Christmas tree. A little tree. demon little Maxwell's dancing. demon. Yeah, Maxwell's little Maxwell's demon. demon. Yeah. That'd be great. Anyway. Um, okay, so who's our next candidate? Our next candidate is Ada Lovelace on December the 10th. Oh, good old Ada Lovelace. Ada Lovelace, yeah. So as you unwrap your iPhone, your Kindle, your Fitbit, or any sort of technological advice, um, device. Before you think about Maxwell, or maybe after you think about Maxwell, take a moment to celebrate one of our science mess heroes who was born a little early. Apparently she was a little bit premature. She was mm. due to be born on the 25th of December, maybe. Ada Lovelace. She's the mother of modern day technology. She was a pretty amazing woman. Uh, born in 1815 to the poet Lord Byron 
and his mathematics-loving wife, Annabella Milbank. Right. Yeah, so apparently Ada's mum feared that she would inherit her dad's volatile, poetic temperament. So to combat this, she raised her on a solid diet of science, logic and maths. And told her to lay off the laudanum, probably. (laughs) And so she grew up pretty much fascinated with machines, um, designing boats from a young age and... um, flying steam machines and anything else that she could yep. sort of um, imagine in that crazy industrial age that was... Steampunk. She was steampunk before that was a thing. She was steampunk before it was a thing. Yeah, yep. she was the original steampunk. Yeah. Her her mentor was a scientist named Mary Somerville who introduced her to a guy named Charles Babbage. Ooh. Yeah, sort of like cabbage but with a B. Um, and Charles was an inventor in his own right who was already designing and planning this huge clockwork calculating machine. Um, Now, Charles and her got along really well, and he described her as that enchantress who has thrown her magical spell around the most abstract of sciences and has grasped it with a force which few masculine intellects could have exerted over it. So he was a big fan of hers. Right. Yeah. Um, Then later in her career, after she got married and had three children, Mm -hmm. In 1942, Babbage asked... 18. Sorry, 1842. In 1842. Otherwise, she was really lonely. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Babbage asked her to translate a short article um, describing something called the analytical engine, um, which was by an Italian mathematician, Luigi Menabria, um, to publish in English. So she was translating. She was also obviously fluent in Italian, yep. which is also amazing. Um, and then to also expand on the article... And the final article ended up being three times as long as the original and included several early computer programs as well as prescient observations on how this analytical engine type machine thing could work. And she was sort of imagined... She was sort of like imagining how it would work with symbols and how it would make music and all of these things way beyond her time. So she was basically... The world's first software engineer. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. She's often referred to as the first computer programmer. And now her um, translated and expanded analytical engine remained a bit of a vision until um, it became one of the critical documents to inspire Alan Turing's work on the first modern computers in the 1940s. So that's why we should be celebrating Ada Lovelace. Absolutely. She's a um, bit of a legend. Christmas. Yeah. I'm thinking that, you know. Science mess, I should say. Her, her mum, who didn't want her to become a romantic poet, instead made her become a computer programmer. I think she pushed too hard in that, in that one direction. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, good on you, Ada Lovelace. Yes, Ada Lovelace. Congratulations. Now, who do we have up next? Well... Sort of, a, we've got a bit of a theme here of uh, electrical and energy-oriented um, people because I'm going to be talking about uh, James Prescott Jewell. Jewell, killer Jewell. JPJ. JPJ, <laughs> the, the old JPJ. Uh, now, he was born on December 24th in 1784 and his dad was a brewer. Right. So that might have set him on a bad path, but <laughs> he didn't He didn't go down the beer brewing path or the beer swilling path necessarily, um, but he was homeschooled. Uh, for a really long time, until he was taught by John Dalton, who is the inventor of early atomic theory, who described how he thought molecules might fit together. And he wasn't exactly right about all that stuff, but he did come up with some ideas that pretty much form the base of our modern molecular theory. But so James Joule uh, was 
probably, possibly influenced by Dalton uh, in his work on gas molecules. He's credited for being the first person to accurately calculate the speed of a moving gas molecule. So that's pretty mm-hmm. amazing considering, you know, this is in the uh, 1700s, 1800, early 1800s. And he later went on to work with Lord Kelvin, whose name you might be familiar with, uh, on the absolute scale for heat, which gives us the absolute zero point of zero degrees Kelvin, which is mm-hmm. as cold as anything can get in the, the universe. Kelvinator. <laughs> that, that is exactly what it's named for. Yes. yes. So his work on heat and resistance led him to formulate Joule's Law, which explains the flow of electrical current through a point of resistance and how heat is dissipated in the process. So he was actually the first person to really kind of start understanding how heat interacted with physical actions and also yeah. with electrical currents and all these sorts of um, all these things are actually all connected. So his investigations on how heat interacted with physical work uh, were big contributions to the first law of thermodynamics, which is the conservation of energy. Oh. So he could realise that electrical current was turned into heat, which was just a different form of energy. Um, and he was the first guy to do that. Well, he certainly hmm. refined the idea. I think other people had probably stumbled across the, mm. the, the, the vague idea of it. But uh, the standard international unit for energy transfer, otherwise known as, you know, when you actually do some work, is the Joule. And it yep. was named for JPJ, uh, James Prescott Joule. So um, if you're wondering what a Joule is, a Joule is a, the amount of energy required to push a one kilogram mass a distance of one meter in one second. That that seems yeah okay that's that's a way of mm-hmm. measuring it, but obviously joule is a measure of all different kinds of energy. So a joule, uh, an average person gives off a joule of energy as heat every one sixtieth of a second. So if you're just sitting there every uh, second, you're giving off sixty joules of uh, biggest joule of heat energy. <laughs> sixty uh, joules. What's biggest another one? So people are probably more familiar with the kilojoule, which is a measure of energy in food commonly yep. used. Uh, a kilojoule is equivalent to a thousand joules, so that's a lot more than a single joule. And the average adult is recommended to eat about eighty-seven hundred kilojoules a day. Now, the reason I mention this is because at this time of year, we often find <laughs> that food and drinks are freely available for people to graze on. So, just keep in mind that that eighty-seven hundred kilojoules is the average. Yeah, but you give off 60, 60 joules every second just by sitting there, so you know. Well, yeah, but you know. Uh, 8,700 kilojoules a bit, is a yeah, lot of yeah, joules, it is, it Let, is, let's yeah. be honest. Um, so just, you know, maybe keep an eye on the uh, your, your, your joule intake and output uh, over the next couple of weeks. And also celebrate joule. And celebrate joule. Thanks, mm. joule. Thanks, joule, for letting us eat all those joules. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Okay, yes, you are listening to Lost in Science, our, our special Science Miss edition. I think uh, we're zipping ahead now. We're up to the 25th of December, uh, and that can only mean one person, I think. Yes. Or two people. Or two people, actually. It can only mean two people. In fact, um, yes, quite true. Uh, well, the first one I'm going to mention is good old Sir Isaac Newton. 
Yes, I'm going to introduce Sir Isaac Newton. Um, I'm going to give you 10 facts you may not have known about Isaac Newton. Oh, great. I'm going to go through his life with 10 facts you may not have known. Okay, fact number one. He was, of course, born on the 25th of December, 1642. But, but, uh, well, England was kind of doing its own thing at the time. They didn't, hadn't accepted the Gregorian calendar. So it's actually technically the 4th of January, 1643 in today's kind of money. But um, people still say 25th of December. We'll let him get away with that. But there you go. He's sort of... According to local jurisdiction. That's right. That's right. Mm. December. Okay. Did yeah, he we'll think he was that. on the 25th of December? He did. He did. Okay. And that brings us to fact number two. He thought he was pretty special because he was born <laughs> on the 25th of December. <laughs> he also adhered to a particular kind of um, religious idea called Arianism, not... Arian with a Y, but Arian with an I, named after a philosopher called Arius, uh, which said, held that Jesus was not actually God. He was like the son of God, but he was kind of, you know, second to God and shouldn't be worshipped as a, as a deity. So, yeah, he was a bit of a heretic in his own, in his own particular mm. way. Fact number three. Uh, is this a fact? Yeah, he basically, essentially, he gave us the bulk of the scientific revolution, together with Galileo, I guess, was the other big person there. He, um, he turned it into a mathematical kind of subject, turned physics into a mathematical subject by inventing calculus at the same time. And, you know, people often think about, oh, you know, he wasn't the first person to think of certain ideas, or why didn't he come up with this sort of idea? It's because he was very precise, and he would only write down in his books the things that he could actually prove with um, mathematics and experiment. So, yeah, he was he basically gave us science as we know it today. And so, maths as we know it today. And maths as we know it today, yeah. Um, fact number four, I guess that was really a fact. Um, yeah, when he discovered, when he first kind of, quotation marks, he discovered gravity as it was, that was thanks to the plague. Oh. The, um, the famous apple incident, which... Um, <laughs> He probably didn't happen. Well, it's a story he told, so okay. it probably didn't happen, but he made up the story. That happened at his um, family's home back in Woolsthorpe. He left Cambridge to go hide out there for a couple of years because the plague was ravaging all the populated centres, and that's what kind of that seclusion um, gave him the time to watch apples falling off trees and <laughs> think of gravity. Um, the plague, of course, that was about 1665, ended by the Great Fire of London um, for those who were playing at home. Um, what else do you know about him? A lot of people already know that he was an alchemist. Uh, it's kind of a well-known thing about Isaac Newton. What you probably don't know is that he once claimed to have discovered the Philosopher's Stone, just like Harry Potter. Just Ooh. like Harry Potter. Yeah. The Philosopher's Did Stone, in the fictional book. <laughs> the Philosopher's Stone, of course, being a, device, or a, a, a thing, substance that will turn base metals into gold. Uh, he wrote about this in one of his notebooks in kind of weird kind of alchemical code. He may have not been in quite right, quite in his right mind because he had a breakdown shortly after this. But um, he did actually, yes, at one stage claim to have discovered the Philosopher's Stone. Fact number six, um, the cause of his breakdown was possibly his um, a relationship he was having with a Swiss mathematician called Nicolas Fatio de Duillier. Now, so Newton was very kind of, it's not known about his sexuality too much. Um, he was very critical of sex in general. If anything, he may have been gay because his most passionate relationships seem to have been with other men like um, Nicolas Fatio de Dullier, who was, as I said, a mathematician, a fellow alchemist, and also a bit of a flake, it turns out. They kind of broke off shortly around the time that Newton discovered the Philosopher's Stone, and then Newton kind of went a bit off the deep end. Um, um. But he came back with our fact number seven, which is when he saved England from a currency crisis. Um, he became warden of the Royal Mint and he fixed the problems they had with all their coins by re 
minting all the coins in the in the land and catching and convicting counterfeiters. He used to go undercover into pubs and catch Did counterfeiters. He really? And he would How interrogate them. How did he go from them. mathematician to undercover counterfeit agent? Well, there was a serious crisis of currency. Basically, they were running out of coins. Coins were being melted down and charged oh. across the channel. Um, things were, you know, people were making fake coins, this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, there was uh, big problems. They couldn't think of a solution, so basically they asked the smartest guy in England. Right. And that's how he got the job. Isaac Newton's secret agent. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Equivalent right. of Batman. Yes. Like... And his officers were in the Tower of London. Fact number eight, after this he became president of the Royal Society, a post, a very high post, which he mostly just used to um, get even with his enemies, including <laughs> um, the Astronomer Royal, John Flamsteed, who wouldn't give him the data that he wanted. Flamsteed! And, and, and Leibniz, um, his rival for the discovery of calculus. Um, <laughs> They're good rival names. Yeah, yeah. Fact number nine, um, his famous saying, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. You may have heard of that. Mm. Is believed by many to not actually be an expression of modesty, but a dig at another one of his rivals, Robert Hooke, who was rather short. (laughs) (laughs) And fact number 10, uh, much of his later years he spent working on biblical prophecy. Um, You'll be glad to know that he predicted the world wouldn't end before 2060. So there's another date to look forward to when people start predicting the end of the world again. So, yeah, that is uh, Isaac Newton, born 25th of December or 4th of January, depending on who you believe. (laughs) I believe him. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes. I'm Maggie Adaran Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. You are are listening to Lost in Science. And, you know, it's interesting that Isaac Newton, a mathematician, thought that he was special for being born on the 25th of December because... Mathematically, about one in every 365 people will be born on the 25th of December. So it's probably, you know, it doesn't make you that special. But look, someone else who was born on the 25th of uh, December and who technically she may not actually be a scientist, but I actually kind of think this is a result of the times she lived in rather than her capabilities as a person. So I wanted to just quickly talk about Clara Barton, whose birthday is on the 25th of December. She had a huge impact on basically women doing all sorts of things, working for one thing, which is a pretty big step forward. Uh, She was a teacher uh, early in her career. She built a free school in the US. uh, And as soon as she'd finished the school and she'd hired another female school teacher, when the school was finished, they replaced her with a man because they didn't think that a woman should be the head of a school. So... Um, taking that in her stride, she, she gave up her teaching. She was a very popular teacher. Mm. She could keep everyone in line and, and keeping them educated. Uh, she went off to Washington in 1855 and got a job as a patent clerk in the, with the, uh, U.S. government, uh, patent office. Wow. Which apparently made her in 1855, one of the earliest paid female employees of the U.S. government. So no one had really done that before her. That would have been fascinating at that time as well, to be a patent clerk. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, she must have had a really good understanding of science and technology yeah. if she's going, well, this hasn't been invented before, so that's yeah. why we have your patent. So at, she had a job as a patent clerk in the US government, US government being a democratic institution. Different governments kept coming in and reduced her to a copywriter from a patent clerk to a copywriter and then just sacked her altogether because oh. she was a woman and they didn't think that women should be doing those kind of jobs uh, for the US government. So she went off, civil war broke out and she went off to become a nurse and her experiences there led her to believe that 
you know, medical services were not very up to date and they were difficult to get to people. And so she was trying to think of ways to help uh, injured people on battlefields in other trouble spots, um, you know, deal with their injuries and get medical attention where people need it. Um, and just after the Civil War, she also became involved through Susan B. Anthony with the women's suffrage movement. So oh. she was a big proponent for women being educated and being allowed to get mm-hmm. jobs Great. and doing yeah. all those sorts of things. So she toured the country, she toured the United States, giving talks about her experiences in the Civil War, and she went off to Switzerland. Well, she went off to Europe in 1869. And while she was in Switzerland, she met the founder of the Red Cross, who said, hey, why don't you start up the Red Cross in the United States? You've got a really big population and, you know, probably worth setting up. So she went home and that's exactly what she did. She set up the American Red Cross and basically ran it from her house until uh, until she passed away. So, look, I said she's not technically a scientist, but I think that her track record of being a teacher and a nurse and a patent clerk and all these other things qualifies her to be to get a mention uh in in the uh lost in science miss episode because yes. if she lived in a different time she certainly almost certainly would have been a scientist at least been able to choose for herself whether she was or not and i think she is definitely worth mentioning because she would be a much better example of exemplary human being than santa claus so i think we should yeah. give her the yeah True. Santa True. Claus even though, even though they share the, the red and the white colouring, <laughs> yeah. the Red Cross probably giving people the help they need they actually rather need. than giving greedy children lots of junk they don't need. That's yeah. right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a few people in the world who can be attributed with saving as many lives as our next science star can. That yes. is Louis Pasteur. He was born on December 27. He grew up with a love of art and painting, but with a little nudge from his dad, channeled his studies into chemistry, uh, which helped him solve one of the biggest questions in 19th century biology. So for 2,000 years, people thought life appeared spontaneously. Um, They thought fleas grew from dust or maggots from dead fish, which is pretty crazy to think about it but if you don't know that germs are in the mm, air then mm, it's mm. it's totally legit right mm. um, anyway he was able to disprove this theory by showing that food went off because of contamination by microbes in the air rather than just spontaneous life growing in it um, and then he went on to argue that this was the cause of disease which is the basis of germ theory and led to the development of antiseptics that changed our healthcare system forever now when a lot of people think about Pasteur. They probably think of pasteurization and what happens to your milk before you drink it. So he developed pasteurization when Napoleon III came to him with a problem that was facing France's wine industry. Okay. And that was that France's best wine was spoiling in transit. Sacre bleu! Mm. So Pasteur saw this as Clearly a contamination issue, yep. but boiling the wine to kill the bacteria made, obviously it made it taste terrible. Um, so he worked out that heating the wine to 55 degrees killed the bacteria without ruining the taste. Uh-huh. And also without boiling off the alcohol, which is a pretty major drawback <laughs> with heating up wine. Just yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. Let's, let's make sure that's the real reason that they didn't want to heat true. it up too much. That's true. So this process is still used today to keep food free from disease and contamination. 
Um, But Pasteur wasn't finished there. He had some new ideas about disease. And after losing three of his children to infectious diseases, um, he started looking a little bit more closely at how diseases started. Um, Naturally, he did this by studying chicken cholera, Mm -hmm. as you do. So the story goes, after a month of Pasteur being away from his lab, he came back and injected some old bacteria, some old um, chicken cholera, Mm -hmm. into his chickens. Now, the birds fell ill, but they didn't die as expected. They became resistant to fresh chicken cholera injections. Now, it was at this point in time that Pasteur realised that these weakened strains of disease could help animals develop immunity. Now, Edward Jenner had done this before um, when he found that cowpox protected against smallpox, but Pasteur had created a way to develop these vaccines in a lab and it was a total turning point in the fight against infectious disease. Pasteur then went on to develop vaccines for other diseases, turning his attention to anthrax, Mm -hmm. created a vaccine for anthrax, diphtheria, which was a huge killer of kids back then, and rabies as well. Um, So Pasteur, saver of lives, saver of wine, surely a great person to be celebrating this festive science season. Excellent. Well, that is a great array of festive sciencey people for you to think about as you're enjoying your um your very rational seasons of celebration this year and yeah we encourage you to think of that and and raise a, a glass of pasteurized wine in toast to everything, <laughs> yeah, that science, yeah. everything that science has given you uh maybe eat an apple it's fallen off a tree I should mention that Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please email us. We'll answer your emails over the break at lostinsci.gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Or just listen to us on the radio. We'll have some summer entertainment for you. Yep. But you'll be able to catch all of us, um, Manisha, Claire, Stu and Chris, as we get Lost in science Miss. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.